Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, last week I had a, a class reunion, 35 years, and two weeks ago I started a new series of messages called Why Church? At the beginning of that first sermon, I brought to you a definition of the word church. Just to review it quickly, it's a gathering of Christ's followers and their children in a local community that voluntarily submits to the godly leadership of elders and who sit under the preaching of the biblical gospel and sacraments as members of the universal church of God. In that message, I brought to you the sad reality of where American Christianity is today as it relates to the church. Statistics such as uh, 19, uh, the average evangelical attends church 19 times a year. That the, the, the percentage of our population that now uh, worships regularly in a church is in a steep decline. More and more, we see the percentage of people who are walking away from God's church. They profess to be Christians, but they do not like the church. That percentage of nuns is growing and growing. And so even though there is this, this tragic devaluing of the church, we looked at Romans 19 in order to see that Jesus does not devalue his church. He loves his church. The church is described as the bride of Christ. And as his bride, we are to show our love for Jesus by worshiping him together. I was, I was moved to do this message, uh, this series of messages all the way back in January. I've been waiting nine months, eight months now to bring this series of messages. What moved me was Pastor Randy Pope. He was here back in January and he preached two messages from First Peter about the church. And as he taught in those messages and I talked with him afterwards, I then went out and I listened to his messages and that entire series and I realized that not only did he believe his church needed that message and those thoughts and truths from God's word, I was convinced that we need them too. So I'm doing something today that I think I've only done once in 30 some odd years of preaching the gospel. I am bringing to you by and large another man's message. How about that? I'm bringing you the content uh, from, I've drawn from Randy's series. And, and by the way, I called him, I explained, Randy, here's where we are. And he said, he was so gracious. He said, use whatever you want to use. Say it however you want to say it. However I can bless covenant, I want to bless covenant. Just remind me when I'm there in January so that I don't accidentally preach the same sermon twice. 
And I said, no problem. So I'm bringing to you this message to you because I really believe we need it to shore up our understanding of what the church is and how important it is. You know, Randy uh, brings out in his series of messages that all of us as individuals, we need to be in a church for several very personal reasons. We need, first of all, to be in a healthy church that speaks God's truth into our life. We don't have to be in a mega church. We don't have to be in a large church or small. The size of a church is really irrelevant. I can tell you at our church, we have no aspirations to be a mega church or a small church. We don't, we're not looking at size. What's important is health. Health. Are we a healthy church? We all need to be in a healthy church that speaks God's truth to us. We need to have a high view of the church. Each of us needs to see the importance of the church and understand it in the role that God has within redemptive history, to see it as the bride of Christ. And thirdly, we all need a biblical worldview that embraces the role of the church in our life as described in the Bible. That word worldview, just to make sure that we're defining it and we're operating off the same sheet of music, it's a framework of ideas and beliefs from which we interpret who we are, who God is, and how we see the world in which we live. That, that last expression, the world in which we live. How should we see the world in which we live? The, the Bible essentially gives us two perspectives. The world is made up of two competing uh, kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, right? You don't read very far in the scriptures or in the gospels without bumping in to this perspective that the world is made up of the kingdom of God. But we also read that the world is made up of the kingdom of the world. It can be kind of confusing, but there it is. The kingdom of the world, what is that talking about? That's talking about the reality that the majority of our world right now is made up of men and women and children who do not know Jesus Christ or follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's the world of the unbelievers, but it's more than just unbelievers. The kingdom of the world is referring to a mindset a philosophy, a perspective that inculcates our culture and our world. It is against God. It is hostile to God. It opposes the Lord and his will and his glory. And so as Christians, we have to recognize the world that we live in means that we are living in both kingdoms at the same time. And so the Bible gives us Titles gives us adjectives and and names to help us to understand our identity and our roles in this world. Names like strangers. We're all aliens. How's that one? You like that one? Aliens. We are citizens of heaven. The one that we like to use in our church quite a bit is ambassadors. See, all of these names are showing us where our real home is, who we belong to, how we are to live and inhabit both the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world as we seek to be ambassadors who bring gospel restoration to this world's deepest needs. And the reality is, is that since we have feet in both kingdoms, we need a place where we can be um, cared for, 
protected, equipped, strengthened, encouraged, and prepared so that as we are in the kingdom of the world, we can represent the kingdom of heaven as Jesus' ambassadors. That place has been, in God's infinite wisdom, named the church. The church is supposed to be this to us, that place that strengthens, equips, encourages, prepares, protects us, guides us, nourishes us so that we can be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So it's unfortunate that the church is not this to so many of God's people or so many of God's people do not see the church in this way, the way that highlights its importance. And the reason why so many within Christianity today do not see the church like this, in part, is because the church itself has not been doing its job, but also in part because American Christianity has been so greatly influenced by the spirit of our age. We have been drastically affected by the consumerism and the extreme individualism of our culture and the kingdom of the world in which we live. It's affected the leadership of God's churches. It's affected the people of God who attend these churches. And this cultural worldview of of individualism, this, this perspective and worldview that says, I'm in charge. I live for myself. I'm beholden to no one but myself and those that matter to me. This philosophy, it has affected Jesus' church and followers of Jesus Christ. This philosophy, this worldview, it appeals to our base sin nature. It's easy to buy in to this individualism of our community and of our world that we live in this consumeristic mindset. There is something within us that easily gravitates to that. And so as a result of this, from this posture of of individualism and consumerism, church is now all about me and mine. And as American Christians, we want and we see the church kind of as a divine bass pro shop, right? For you ladies as a heavenly target, right? Uh, We want our church the way I I want my church the way I want it. I want it when I want it. I want it where I want it. I want it how I want it. And I want to get from it exactly what I want because that's what matters. Me. Mine. This is where we are. And by the way, the church leaderships do not get off the hook because the churches across our land have now turned themselves into places that reward this type of worldview. And the church growth movement that has been in place for 30, 40 years has taught a generation or two now of pastors to essentially cater to these basic needs that people express, shape your church to meet the desires of these ambassadors who are actually defective because they love the kingdom of the world that they're living in. That's where the primary allegiance is. They just want a little bit of spirituality and religion sprinkled on top of it. And so churches drop membership. They drop church discipline. They drop all the harder things of the gospel and they cater to the desires of individualistic Christians. And we wonder why our churches are in such decline, 
We wonder why people are not coming to Christ, why the world scoffs at the people of God. Church, this is the majority report within American Christianity today. It's gloomy. We need revival. We need God to do a work in his people. So with this background and recognizing what's going on, you can see why, Randy, why am I, I, I want to bring this to you because I don't want this to characterize our church. And by the way, I don't think that we're in that bad of condition compared to other churches, but it's, it has affected our church. We'd be naive to say it wasn't. I'd be naive because, listen, probably 40% of our church attends 19 times a year or less. It's this spirit of the age is in covenant church. We have to call it out. We have to deal with it. And so for us, as we get into this series, with all that as background, there's two corresponding truths. They're interconnected. I want you to get a hold of them this morning because they're going to shape today's message and next week's message and if necessary, a final message at the end of the month. The first truth is this. The antidote to such unhealthy individualism is accountable relationships. The second truth, which is interconnected with the first one, is that there is no true accountable relationship without a recognized authority. These two concepts, accountable relationships and authority, we're gonna be spending most of our time on the recognized authority and the relations that come out of this authority. We need to do this, church, because if we want to be healthy Christians in a healthy local church that stays healthy and continues to honor God, we must understand these interconnected truths. Now, I got news for you. Not one of you has come to me in 11 years and say, Jerry, you know what I need in my life? More authority. <laughs> None of you have asked me to preach about spiritual authority. Man, I'm needing this, Jerry. None of you have done that, okay? And I get it, we don't want it. But let's understand the truth that is in this passage before us this morning. Jesus gives authority to his church for the benefit of his people and for the benefit of his kingdom. You know, this passage that we're looking at this morning, it's a popular one, it's well known. Jesus is talking to his apostles. He's asked them, who do people say that I am? And they give him various answers about various prophets. And then he asks the most important question, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives his wonderful answer. And on the heels of that wonderful answer, Jesus in verses 18 and 19 says something that is significant as it establishes the authority of his church. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Look at that last verse for a second. Keys of the kingdom, bound in loose. If you feel like you have a rock-solid understanding of what the keys of the kingdom are, what it means to bind and loose, and who has been given those keys. If you feel like I know the answers to that, raise your hand this morning. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is a hard verse. And by the way, it's a controversial verse. It creates several important questions, the first of which are, what are the keys to the kingdom? 
What's he talking about here? Well, let's think about keys for a minute. What do, what do keys, let's think logically, what do keys do? Keys open a door that's been locked. It closes a door and locks it. Uh, keys can be used to do what? It can let people in to a room. They can be used to keep people out of a room. And by the way, the keys can be used to unlock a door and open it up and usher people out who have already been let in. Make sense? Right? That's what keys do. So, so what's he getting at here? You see, in the ancient world, if you had an estate, you had a steward or a foreman, a CEO of your estate, and you gave him the keys to the estate. The keys were a symbol of his power and authority over that estate that he had been put in charge of. So the keys represent authority. So how does this work in the church? What does it mean to open, close the doors of the church. Are we talking about Kevin Reinecke who comes out here at 10 o'clock every night and locks up? <laughs> no, of course not. There's something more important going on here. Uh, for example, uh, we saw it this morning. It'll happen again in September. People will come through our membership classes. Children will come through our membership classes. And when all is said and done, they will say to themselves, many of them, I would like to become a member of Covenant Church. Well, what happens is that individual then meets with a couple of our elders. They have a conversation. They talk about a lot of things, but one of the most important things is that person's spiritual journey. How are they confident that one day, if they stand before the gates of heaven and Jesus were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would their answer be? You see, the elders have a responsibility to know where's this person at spiritually. And so as they talk to that person, if they give an answer that is true to the gospel, that indicates that God has done a work in their heart where they've confessed and repented of their sin and turned to Jesus as Lord and Savior, these elders now recognize, I'm talking to somebody who's in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, this person needs to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus' church. Let's open the door and let them in. Click. Okay. Sometimes, though, the answers we get are not gospel. For example, we might get an answer that says, well, I've been a member of the Garden Club for 25 years, and I've never gotten any tickets. I obey the laws and pay my taxes, and I'm a good person. Just ask anybody who knows me. It might be, you know, I've been a coach in a police athletic league for 30 years, and I try to do unto others as I would have them do to me. And sometimes we get these answers from people who clearly do not understand the gospel. And at those moments in time, these elders have a responsibility. They essentially say, in a nice way, we need to keep this door locked for a little while until you can enter appropriately. And so we'll turn around, and through the decades, Covenant Church has seen this happen numerous times. We will work with this individual, and we may have stopped them from joining initially, but then by meeting with them and helping them discover who Jesus is, they turn and they confess their need of salvation, and they come into the universal church of God, and they become believers. And when that happens, we have the joy of opening the door and saying, now come in to his local church. This is for their benefit, because the last thing we want to do is to send a message to anyone that your eternal salvation is assured because you're the member of our church. It's far better 
to not give them any sense of false security. So this is what it means to, to exercise the keys in our local setting. Sometimes in the years, we have opened up the door and we've ushered out people who've already been let in because of church discipline, because of scandalous, egregious sin. And this is normally a long process, but when somebody is living in a a scandalous form of sin that brings shame upon the name of Christ, and there's an obstinacy and a refusal, and this is the important thing, a refusal to repent and acknowledge the sin. When this happens and they refuse to confess what's going on, we have no choice but as God's elders but to open that locked door and usher them out. These are the keys of the kingdom. A second question, what does it mean to bind and to loose? This is easy, quicker. This is a rabbinical term. To bind means to make obligatory. To loose means to permit something, especially in the area of conduct. Aligning ourselves with what the will of heaven is. This is what this is getting at. A good example in the book of Acts was when the elders, the apostles come together at a Jerusalem council. They talk, they pray, they discuss, they seek God's will. And as a result, they release, they, they loose the requirements of the Mosaic law upon the Gentile Christians. They don't have to obey the dietary restrictions, circumcision, they're happy about that. All this other stuff goes on because of the Jerusalem council. Third question, and this is an important question, right? Who is Jesus talking to? Who's the you in this verse? Who are the recipients of the keys? Some people would say, oh, it's every individual Christian, and that's kind of dumb. No offense. (laughs) Jesus isn't saying, hey, individual Christians, you have the authority to declare yourself a believer, that you should have the authority to let yourself into a church, and then when you sin too much, you have the authority to kick yourself out. (laughs) Jesus isn't saying that, right? Now, historically, one of the answers that has been most popular through the centuries is that it's the Pope, right? That Jesus is is talking about Peter's successors. The idea that Jesus here is talking to Peter as an individual, and Peter as the, excuse me, as the Bishop of Rome, and his successors, all the popes since then, have been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and therefore the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, is infallible as God's one sole voice, and all church, all Christians need to be under the Pope. That is not what Jesus is teaching here, not at all. We need to understand the context of what's going on. Jesus is talking to all of these apostles, these men who are to become the foundation of the church, and he asks this question, and for the first time, that we know of anyway, maybe not the first time, but for a rare time, Peter speaks up. Excuse me. And when he speaks up this time, he does not put his foot in his mouth, which is an accomplishment. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered that question, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Stop right there. Understand how important that statement is, that testimony of Peter. This must be the testimony of every single one of us if we are to truly be a member of Jesus' church, to be a part of the bride of Christ. There has to be this solid belief in our hearts that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he came to this earth to live that perfect life that is required of all of us. He obeyed God's law and then took upon himself our punishment as the wrath of God was poured out upon him and that we commit to him as Lord of our lives 
This has to be our testimony or we can never be a part of God's true church. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus is doing a wordplay here. The name Peter in the Greek is Petros. It means a little stone or a pebble. He says, hey, you are the little stone. I'm going to build my church upon the rock. Petra sounds a lot like Petros, doesn't it? I'm going to build my church upon the Petra, the boulder that is immovable, the ridge of rock that cannot be shaken. That's what I'm going to build my church on, Jesus says. So who is this rock? Is it the Pope as Peter's successor? I would contend, no, absolutely not. If Jesus was trying to say it was Peter, he would say, Peter, you have spoken well. Upon you, I'm going to build my entire church. That's not what he says. Not at all. In fact, if we really want to know what it is, we just need to listen to Peter himself. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he makes it clear that the rock that the church is built upon is Jesus Christ himself. It's the truth of who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God who lived and died for us and who now rules from heaven's glory. In Matthew chapter 7, you have the story of the wise man and the foolish man who build their house. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. The wise man builds his house upon the rock and he withstands the trials of life. And in that story, Jesus says, who is the rock? Jesus is. And so Peter says this about Jesus, that he is that chief cornerstone that was chosen and precious and laid in Zion, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So it's not the key, person who has the keys is not the Pope. It's not the Peter's successor. It's not individual Christians. That only leaves one alternative, that Jesus was speaking to these men and they represent the group of ordained leaders that God raises up in his church. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I understand, by the way, why Catholicism wants to say it's Peter. Because the you here in Matthew 16 is singular. And so they say, hey, look, he's talking singular. He's just talking to Peter. He's not talking to the whole group of men. But this is where we have to understand the context. Who is he speaking to? This is where we have to compare Scripture to Scripture. And so if you just turn over a couple more chapters, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is once again speaking to this exact same group of people. He's speaking about the church. We're going to look at that passage next week. He even uses the same terminology. He says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Sound familiar, right? But here, the you is plural. John, the Apostle John, when he's recording this similar event, he also uses the plural you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus wasn't speaking to Peter alone. Peter was the first among many equals. They all had equal authority. And what we see in the book of Acts is these men exercising this authority. 
They go out from Jerusalem. They spread out across the known world. They begin to plant churches, as we've talked about already this morning. And as part of the planting of churches, these apostles, they raised up leaders. They called them elders. It was plural, always plural. And what did they do? They laid hands upon those men, and they ordained them, and they gave them authority over these local churches. About every year or every other year, we do something similar here. We bring candidates before you that you've nominated, that we've put them through training, and those who are vetted and approved by you, we make elders of our church. And in that, in that service, all the elders come around them, and we lay our hands upon them, not because we're trying to strangle them, <laughs> but because we are doing something that is an unbroken chain for almost 2,000 years now where Jesus laid up his hands and breathed upon the apostles, and the apostles did it to a group of men, and those men did it to a group of men, and down through the ages, through the centuries, through the churches, until modern times where hands have been laid upon us as elders, and now we lay hands upon elders, and it is conveying that these men now have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, an authority within Jesus' church. Jesus gives authority to his church for the benefit of his people and his kingdom. Now that was a lot, wasn't it? So let's think about some implications of this, some applications of it. I'm going to give them to you this morning. Don't freak out, okay? If you're going to freak out, do it after the service where I can't see you. In the next uh, sermon or two, if I need to extend it, we're going to unpack these implications. Right now, I'm just going to give them to you, okay? So here's an implication of this passage and what it means to have authority in Jesus' church and the church to have the keys of the heaven and the leaders, the elders, to have that authority. First implication, every believer should be declared a member of God's earthly kingdom by ordained leadership within the church. We have that need. Secondly, every believer should be under the spiritual authority of ordained leadership within the church. Thirdly, every believer should be in submission to and accountable to ordained leadership within the church. Ugh. This goes against the grain of individualism, doesn't it? But understand what the scriptures say. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders. He's talking to a local church. He's referring to their elders. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Listen, this is where it becomes challenging for us. This is where, this is what the scripture teaches just directly confronts the spirit of our age. Are you nuts, Jerry? You haven't seen what I've seen happen in churches through the years. And you expect me to submit myself to the authority of the church? You're saying God wants me to submit and support and come under the authority of a group of elders? Are you crazy? <laughs> and by the way, I get it. I was at my reunion last weekend, and there were a lot of wounded people in that room. As we had been on the receiving end 
of abusive, ungodly, unbiblical authority as it was exercised in the church. I want to make it clear here, I'm not talking about blind obedience that submits to unbiblical, immoral activity and ungracious behavior by God's leaders. Not at all. Uh, now, now, how we respond to that kind of activity, there is a right way and a godly way to respond, and there's a wrong, sinful way to respond. But I'm not saying that these verses are telling us as the people of God to just blindly follow the leaders when they merrily march down the road of immorality and unbiblical practices. Not at all. Okay? But typically, that's not what dials us up. In the history of Covenant Church, it's not. Uh, Dan Henley was a phenomenal pastor, and elders of this church are phenomenal. It's not immoral behavior. It's not unbiblical, ungodly decisions. I mean, do you know what dials up a lot of church members and good churches? It's not immoral, ungodly behavior. It's just boneheaded decisions. <laughs> Uh, we might look at the leaders and we see something that they have decided or what they're doing and we scratch our head and say, what are they thinking? That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh, what? They need to get their act together. And, and we begin going down that road and we finally say, you know what? I, I, I cannot support this. I'm not going to be a part of this. Forget it. And then over time, it just becomes a matter of let's just throw the whole thing out because the church is so fallible. You're sitting here, Jerry, telling me to accept as God's will what a group of elders may say, and I don't necessarily agree with that decision because it's not the smartest thing in the world to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a right way to voice our disagreements. There's a wrong way. But ultimately, at the end of the day, God has decreed that it is His will that the church be led through those elders who aren't perfect, but they're his appointed agents. Hey, can I ask you a question? Let me kind of close, wrap this up. Let me pose a couple of questions to you. Um, is there anywhere other than the Bible that we can know for certain the will of God? You know, most of us, especially here at Covenant, we would say no. We have a high view of Scripture, right? The Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, says the Scriptures are inspired, God-breathed, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for teaching, and righteousness. But do you know, it's not biblically accurate to say that the only place we can discover and discern God's will is through God's Word. Children, I've got good news for you this morning. If when you go home this afternoon, your parents tell you to clean up your room, you have just heard God's will for your life. <laughs> Young people, when mom and dad say, nope, you are not dating that yahoo, you have just heard God's will for your life. Ephesians 6, 1, right? says, children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. Holy mackerel, you mean we can discern God's will through Washington, D.C.? No, let's scratch, scratch that off the screen, please. No, of course. Romans 13, 1, right? Submit to the authorities because they are agents of God's righteousness. So as long as our government passes laws that are not a violation of God's written word calling upon us to do something that is ungodly, unbiblical, unrighteous, it is God's will for us to submit to those laws. I wish that part wasn't in the Bible. And then, of course, there's the church. 
Obey your leaders and submit to them. Hey, whose job is it in the church to look after and watch over the souls of the flock? It's the elders. So yes, we can discern and learn God's will from places other than the scriptures. It's an important thing for us to realize. But there's a follow-on question. If someone or something is in the will of God, does that mean it is automatically in the wisdom of God? Okay? Let's think about the, the four categories here. If it's the Bible, and the Bible says it, that's the will of God, is it the wisdom of God? Yes, absolutely. How about the family? If the, family, if the parents say something and it's not immoral, unbiblical, is that the will of God for that child? Yes, it is. But is it necessarily in the wisdom of God? No, not at all. Let me illustrate to you like this. Let's say you have a 16-year-old daughter and she comes to you and she says, hey, my friend Sarah is having a sleepover this weekend and I would like to go. And you are diligent parents, so what do you do? You begin to ask her about this sleepover, right? And you find out that Sarah's gonna be there with several of the girlfriends, but then as you probe a little bit deeper, you realize that several of the guys from the class and from the school are also gonna be there at the sleep-in sleepover for the entire weekend. So, so you're telling me, honey, that guys and girls are gonna be at the sleepover at the same time in the same house? Uh, yes, mom. Oh, and by the way, Sarah's parents aren't gonna be there for the entire weekend. Okay? Now, as God's designed authority in that daughter's life, when she asks you that, what do you say? No. Exactly, with, with an emphasis on the back. I like that. But then your daughter says to you, you know, I thought that y'all were gonna say that. And I want you to know I have been praying diligently for the last two weeks, and I am convinced that this is God's will for my life. <laughs> and mom and dad, if you can show me a verse in the Bible that says I cannot go over to Sarah's sleepover, then I want to be in God's will and I won't go. But if you can't show me that verse, then I've got to go with the way the Holy Spirit is leading me. I'm sorry. To which you say, no. right, because Ephesians 6, 1, I have your verse, sweetie. Children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. God's will has been declared for that child. Amen? But let's say you as parents, because dad, she has you wrapped around your finger, or her finger, excuse me. You turn to your wife, and then you turn to her, and you say, you know what, honey, you cannot sleep over at Sarah's house so just make, you can go, but just make sure you're home by 3 a.m. Okay? Is that wise? No. Exactly. Now listen, it's not unbiblical. There's no verse that prohibits. There's no curfew laws being broken. Everything is fine from a legal standpoint. It is God's will for you as parents to tell your daughter whether she cannot go or whether she can stay out till 3 a.m. That's God's will for you and for that child and for that family. That doesn't mean it's necessarily the wisdom of God. Do you get what I'm saying? Now we can certainly see this happening in Washington, D.C., <laughs> But you know what? It happens in churches that you've been a part of. Because elders are fallible people. 
and they make decisions based upon the information they have. Maybe they don't even do a good job of getting all the information depending upon their competence and the moment that they're working in. And so misunderstandings can occur. And by the way, y'all can relax. There's no misunderstandings going. I'm just covering this now to prevent things in the future. <laughs> but we've all been a part of that. And as a result, what happens is we, we tend to want to start taking our toys and go home. And I'll be in a church, but I won't actually commit and join it. I'm just going to kind of date it rather than marry it. Because, Jerry, you got to see some of the stuff I've seen. I mean, church leaders have an incredible ability to be dumb. And they can be at times. So I know this raises a lot of questions, but I ask you to bear with me, right? Next week, we're going to get into the benefits of membership and why you ought to agree with these three implications. But for now, I want you to chew on something. You may want to take a picture of this. I want to give you a statement. I want you to chew on it this week. Think about it. And we're going to go there in the week ahead and maybe a couple of weeks. Listen to this. Christianity is a covenant marriage with Jesus. Membership is a covenant marriage with the body of Christ, the church. Marriage to either without submission is a distortion of marriage. And to submit to Jesus is by necessity a submission to the Word of God and to the church of God. Don't react yet. I want you to just think about it. Chew on it. Over the next couple of weeks, hopefully, I'm going to bring to you some messages that help establish within your heart and your mind a healthy theology of ecclesiology. This is the doctrine of the church, something that is pretty much ignored. And by the time we get done, I'm hoping that all of us will be married to Jesus' church, not just dating it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage of Scripture. It's a weighty subject and topic but it's extremely relevant in the age in which we live. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be a church that loves your church the way you love it. May we be committed to it. May we be married to it. When, when things don't go exactly as we think they should, may we respond with grace, with the filling of the Spirit. May we be unified as we march forward, seeking the growth of the kingdom here in Brevard County. Make us a place that has the aroma of the gospel and the shalom, the peace of God. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.